Let's pray together. Our Father, we are coming before you, and we are eager to hear from your word. So we thank you for what we just read and for speaking it to us afresh by the Spirit. We pray that you would grant us to be strengthened with power in our inner beings so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. We pray that we would be rooted and grounded in love together and that we would have strength this morning to comprehend together and with the Christians across the globe what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses understanding. So we pray that you would fill us with your fullness this morning and that you would do above and beyond anything we could ask or think. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this text that we just read seems to be focused on Paul, this apostle, the writer, his role in ministry, who he is, his unique ministry and role. He's explaining how God revealed the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus to him, and he's explaining his unique role as the one who was sent, the apostle, the sent one to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, to share this message of the gospel. So he has a unique role in history as this missionary to the non-Jewish people at that time. But he's not just teaching the Ephesian church, who's receiving this letter at first, um, about his unique role. They already know that anyway. So what's he doing here? He's encouraging them. This text exists to give encouragement to those who are potentially discouraged by Christian suffering. That's what this text is here for. It's here to help Christians who are discouraged about suffering that comes into our lives or the lives of people we know and love because they're Christians, because they're faithful to Jesus. And so here's what we'll see. We'll see this discouragement of suffering and then three encouragements, the three things that can give us confident endurance in any suffering for Jesus' sake, or can give us the confidence to have encouragement in the midst of a world where brothers and sisters in Christ in other countries and contexts and our own can face various levels of social shame and persecution and even physical death in many places. So first, the, discourage, the discouragement of suffering, and then three encouragements, and the three encouragements are essentially these the gospel story, the gospel mission, and the gospel church. Paul gives these three encouragements, these three three perspectives on those three topics that can give us encouragement. So the encouragement comes from knowing the gospel story, the gospel mission, and the gospel church. So let's consider first this discouragement of suffering, especially suffering for Christ. So I mentioned that Paul isn't just giving a description of his own ministry and role here. He's actually addressing a very real and present concern among the Christians that he's writing to. So this is actually um, a digression. Paul's been celebrating all the blessings of the gospel. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, we've been going deep into these blessings of the gospel, this good news that God's brought to the world. Paul's celebrating them. He's been reminding them about how God has powerfully worked in their lives. We've been reminded how God's powerfully worked in our lives. If you are a Christian, it's because you were, like everyone, spiritually dead. Nobody comes into this world a Christian. We become Christians as God powerfully 
gives us a new heart, raises us from the dead spiritually so that our eyes are opened and we trust in Jesus. And then He radically begins transforming us and bringing us into a new community that, that has unity and love across all sorts of barriers and lines that typically cause divisions in our world of age and social class and economic status and ethnic background and cultural background or ethnicity in general. And Paul is celebrating this. He's just over-the-top celebratory in this letter. And now he's about to pray for them. So in verse 1, look at it again in chapter 3. He says, for this reason. So he's thinking back to the things he's already talked about, celebrating this good news. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then your translation probably has a dash there, right? He actually interrupts his, his flow of thought here. He says, in light of all the gospel goodness that I've been talking about, I, Paul, and then he trails off. But he comes back to that thought in verse 14. So if you look at verse 14, you can see him start up this exact sentence again. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And then he says what he prays for them. This is where he's heading. He's finished the first two chapters, and then he wants to pray for them, and then begin exhorting and encouraging them in light of it all, applying all of this to everyday life. And so he starts by saying, for this reason, in light of all of this, and he's about to pray and encourage and exhort them, he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, dot, dot, dot. And then he takes this digression for the rest of these 13 verses. So what Paul's saying is really somewhat of a side note but critically important. Why? Why did Paul sense that he needed to pause before he moves on to praying for them? Why did he want to say this? We get a hint and then a clear statement. So just let's discover this together. The hint is right here in verse 1. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And that's when he trails off. So he's about to pray for them. He has a self-reference here. I, Paul. But then he, he adds to that self-reference saying, I'm a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. So he's in prison, and this is the first time he's mentioned this in this letter. It's in passing as he refers to himself before he prays for them. And it's, it's as though he realizes that this was the time that he needed to say something about that. So that's the hint, and verse 13 is the clear statement. He gives this whole digression at that point, and then he tells them why he just said all of this, everything we just read in verse 13. So here's the reason for our text, verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So he gives this long side note. And then he gives the reason for it. And he says, I'm, I'm saying all of this for this purpose because I don't want you to be discouraged about my suffering. I don't want you to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. So why would they have been discouraged at this mention of Paul in prison? Or why is Paul aware that, that he knows that they may be prone to lose heart over what they know of his suffering? Well, think about it. A lot of them know him personally. He spent over two years with these believers in recent years. He was the one who first brought the gospel to Ephesus. We've already talked about the importance of church planting this morning. Um, 
We're a church plant, a church plant in Thorntown starting. There was a church plant in Ephesus. The, the, these people are receiving this letter. This, they're this beautiful community of love and light as a result of the Apostle Paul going there, speaking the gospel, and the Spirit powerfully giving new life to people and gathering, together, gathering them together as a local church. So Paul was the one who brought the gospel to them. And then he stayed with them for over two years and was teaching them in that city, speaking to Christians and non-Christians about Jesus, it says, daily for over two years. So Paul was living among them for a very long time. He knew them very personally. And then another time after that, when he was traveling somewhat near Ephesus, he called the elders of that church to meet with him. Acts chapter 20 tells us about that event. Paul encouraged them and exhorted them to be faithful pastors. And at the end of that meeting, it says they're all in tears because they loved Paul so much and because they knew that suffering was in his future. They didn't know what it was going to be yet, though. And Paul did suffer. He kept sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with both those who uh, had the Scriptures, the Jewish people, and those who were Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And when he went to Jerusalem... uh, a mob was formed, and he was almost lynched for it because a lot of the Jewish religious leaders were infuriated that he was saying that Gentiles, non-Jewish people, could be fully included members of God's people without having to become Jews first, without having to be circumcised, take on the law, these, these cultural practices and practices that were put in place for the Jewish people for a time. And so Paul's arrested, which actually saved his life, and, but then he couldn't get a fair trial. So he shipped off to a place called Caesarea where he stayed for two years, and again, the government was in no hurry to hear his case, and so he appeals to Caesar. They send him to Rome, and he stayed in Rome awaiting his trial, and the result would possibly be, he doesn't know, execution. And now he's writing this letter from prison, whether it it may be that imprisonment in Rome, it may be a later one. He mentions that he's in chains in this point, so it may be a different imprisonment. But either way, this church, these believers in Ephesus and the surrounding area, this letter was probably to be shared in many places, they knew him, they loved him, and they're concerned for him. And he's concerned, interestingly, surprisingly, not for himself, but for them, because they're concerned about him. So, wouldn't you be discouraged or at least prone to lose heart? Think about the Christian man or woman who's been most influential in your life. Just think of one or two in your mind right now. Think about the person who has discipled you well, who's helped you to know Christ, to know the Bible, to follow Christ and become like Him. Maybe that was a parent or maybe it's a close friend of yours. Maybe it was a small group leader or a pastor, or a Christian author and leader? What would happen if you found out this afternoon that he or she was put in prison? And the reason was not because of anything they did wrong, but because they were teaching the Bible to people and saying what it says. They were just talking to people about Jesus, and you can tell this whole thing is unjust. And then, let's say from now to two years from now, nothing actually changes. There's just delays in a hearing. Um, News articles are written that slander him or her, make up false accusations, call your friend a bigot. Uh, You're sensing this actually may move forward toward execution. And the whole thing's unjust. Would you not perhaps be discouraged And what if this was part of the cultural climate where this was beginning to happen to other people? 
you know and love, and you're realizing that if you say the kinds of things that this leader said, you may be arrested as well, or at least you'll lose your job or be socially ostracized. This is the environment you begin living in. And so Paul recognizes they may be deeply concerned about him, and he wants to encourage them. So he says, I don't want you to lose heart over what I'm suffering. So this is a very personal and pastoral moment in the letter of Ephesians. And we need this today as well, because this is a category of suffering that is common to all Christians, to some degree or another, who live faithfully. Jesus promised that if we truly follow Him, follow Him faithfully, we will be persecuted like He was, in one degree or another. The Apostle Paul himself wrote elsewhere. I mean, here he's talking about his own suffering, but elsewhere he said that everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer for it. They'll be persecuted, which means that there will be this new, if you're a Christian, when you become a Christian, you'll receive a new and particularly discouraging kind of suffering. I mean, this, this, I say particularly discouraging because this isn't suffering for doing something wrong. I mean, we all have the suffering that comes into our life that's inexplicable, and we have the suffering that's really our own fault, right? But now, this is a new kind of suffering that comes in simply for following Jesus and seeking to honor God by His help, and then God, the one who orchestrates all things and is sovereign, allows suffering to come into your life for that reason, because you were faithful to Him. I mean, isn't that peculiar? And couldn't that be potentially discouraging? facing incredible suffering. I mean, Paul's in, in prison. He, he was an incredibly faithful follower of Jesus, and he was living his life for Christ all the time, and he's thrown in prison for it, facing execution for it. And wouldn't that lead to the temptation to be discouraged when you seek to honor Christ in your life, perhaps in your workplace, living with moral integrity, or mentioning that you are a Christian, or seeking to honor Him in some way? It's hard And then as a result, people may even dismiss you or slander you. So I'm not talking about the kind of ridicule that can come by being obnoxious. Um, Many professing believers have it coming for them. But I'm talking about the kind of rejection that comes simply for being a gentle, tender-hearted, but faithful and uh, a Christian with integrity. Moral integrity, sexual integrity, faithfulness to Jesus. And it's going to get harder and harder to live as a Christian without this kind of suffering. I mean, America has been a relatively easy place to live as a Christian. I don't mean that it's been an easy place for everyone to live. I mean, it's been very hard for people to live of various classes and ethnicities here. What I mean, though, is that throughout history and across the globe, it has been very common to suffer in very significant ways for being a Christian. It's normal from a, you know, a historical and global perspective, it's normal for Christians to be out of step with their culture. It's normal for Christians to be completely misunderstood and slandered. It's normal for Christians to be viewed as backward and bigoted for their beliefs and practices. It's normal for Christians to be pushed to the margins because of their way of thinking and living. It's viewed as even a threat to the social order. But this has you know, not been the norm in America, right? So much of Western culture has been slowly shaped by Christianity, and in many ways it's been a gift. I mean, so much of what we take for granted in the Western world about human rights and human dignity and care for the poor, I mean, so much is the result 
of the influence of Christianity on Western society. And to be a Christian had been equated with making an honorable move in your life, right? Uh, there was a time when, when pastors were viewed as some of the most respectable people in the community. That is very quickly changing. No one, no one now or in the future is going to become a pastor in America because they think they'll get some social clout. I mean, it's just not the way it is anymore. And being a Christian has the same thing going on for it because things have been shifting in very quickly. Just this past week, um, you know, one presidential candidate expressed a measure of contempt for anyone who holds to a historic Christian perspective on marriage as being an institution that is for one man and one woman. Another candidate said that he would remove the tax-exempt status from any charity or institution or church that would not support same-sex marriage. So following Jesus, embracing what he says about ethics and integrity may cost us more and more in this culture. And we can't predict the future. We don't know, but we can see uh, tides changing. And we'll be tempted to lose heart. We'll be like the Ephesian Christians here as they think about Paul in prison, as we hear about what happens to other believers, we, and we may become discouraged. And so the rest of this text is here for this purpose, to help us. Paul is writing to people who may be losing heart because they see that the world is out to get Paul simply for following Jesus, and they see that they may be out to get them. And so he wants them filled with strength filled with confidence, filled with joy, to not only not lose hearts, but to be confidently joyful even in the midst of suffering for Christ. I mean, Paul's not discouraged. He's the one in prison, and the first two chapters, I mean, he's just thrilled. He's a very happy man, and he is in chains. And so, he wants us to have his perspective. He wants all Christians to share his perspective, to have this resilient joy in the midst of a hard life. And it won't just help us for when we're discouraged because of Christian suffering. But, and here's what maybe many of us need to hear right now, and what we need right now, this will give us um, not just encouragement when we're discouraged, but also a fresh confidence and boldness to not shrink back from doing what's hard out of fear for what might happen if we do. Very often we avoid the social ridicule or the rejection that would come from identifying ourselves as a Christian or giving our whole life to Him or patiently and gently just speaking the truth in love to people. And so here are three perspectives on reality that Paul gives, three massive encouragements for us when we consider Christian suffering. So first is the gospel story. When Paul thinks about how they may lose heart, because of his suffering, he goes right to the gospel itself. He doesn't say, hey, don't think about my suffering. I mean, not a big deal. He doesn't say, hey, just look on the bright side. He doesn't say, kind of think about happy things. Um, he says, you need to understand reality. You need to understand what's actually true about history. He says, you need to understand that I count this an incredible privilege to be suffering for the gospel. And he speaks about just how incredible it is to know what God is doing in the world. And the key word in verses 2 to 7 is this word mystery. So let's look at verse 2 again. He says this, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me to, uh, for you, how the mystery 
was made known to me by revelation. And when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. So when we use the word mystery in English, we usually think of it something, of something that's like puzzling or it's hard to understand or it's um, obscure or incomprehensible. But when Paul uses this word, it doesn't refer to something that we can't understand. Like, oh, that's, that's too mysterious. We can't understand that. It refers to something instead that was hidden but is now clear. So you read or watch Sherlock Holmes and you know there's a mystery going on. You're not quite sure what's going on. Maybe some of us, you know, read and watch this and we have great confidence we know what's going on and then we find out we were wrong. And until the, it's until the end of the mystery when everything becomes clear, right? The truth, there, there is truth, there is reality, but it's hidden. And then at some point toward the end, it's revealed and it's clear. And so that's something like what is happening here. The, the truth of what God was really up to in the world was revealed in part before Jesus, but his, just how good the good news would be was hidden. But now in Christ Jesus, it's clear as day. It's revealed. It's set forth. It's plain. It was a secret. Now it's brought out into the open. And whenever Paul uses this word mystery, it's connected to Christ and the gospel. At the end of the letter, he even refers to the mystery of the gospel. In fact, the mystery is really what we've already been considering these past few weeks in chapters 1 through 2. Look at verses 3 and 4, how Paul summarizes it. He says, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. So the mystery is made known as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. So he's, he's just written briefly about the mystery, and he's saying, if you read what I'm telling you, you can perceive that I've been granted insight into this mystery. And we read Ephesians 1 and 2, and we say, wow, <laughs> right? We can see his insight into the glory of the gospel, the wonder of who Jesus really is and what he does for us and who he declares us to be as giving us new identities as sons and daughters of the Father. So that's what he's been writing about for almost the entirety of the first two chapters. In fact, look at, back at chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. I won't get tired of, of having us turn back there to those verses because they're so helpful for understanding us or helping us understand what history is all about, where it's all heading, what reality is about. One of the blessings of being a Christian is right here. It's, it's knowing the mystery. So here's what he says. God has been making known to us the mystery there's the word, of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So the mystery is God's plan for history. It's God's will. It's his purpose. It's his plan for all of history. And if you want to know what that plan is, look at Jesus Christ because that's his plan. To set forth Christ to the world as the king over all things, and to bring unity to our fractured and broken world. Ever since sin entered the world, this whole place has been broken and fractured and decaying. We feel it in our relationships with the Lord himself and with one another. We see it in the cultures around the world. And this is a broken and fragmented world. And, and we learn in the gospel what God's purpose is for the world. Not just to forgive isolated individuals, but 
even what that is, is part of this massive plan to restore people to himself, to be brought together as new people and a new humanity and local churches under the headship of Jesus, the kingship of Jesus, for all things to be brought into unity in and under him. So that's God's plan for the world. So those are, we've seen two ways through this letter that the gospel is great news for people whose lives are bad news. It's good news for us because God is restoring what's broken in our relationship with Him. If you're a Christian, you have begun to experience this restoration. If you've not yet trusted Christ, this is available for you. A restored relationship with the God who made you, uh, brought back into His fellowship through Jesus. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, He bore our sins upon Himself on the cross, and He rose again from the dead, and He now welcomes us to be fully forgiven and welcomed. That's part of the good news of the gospel, being forgiven and then being transformed to know him and love him and love one another. The second part of the good news of the gospel is not so much this vertical reality, but his horizontal reality, right, that we're brought together now because we, those who trust in Christ now have the most important thing in life in common, Jesus Christ. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, friendship begins when, two, when someone says to another, you too, right, you have something in common. I didn't know that was true of you as well. Now every Christian can look at each other and say, you too. We have the God who made us, who's restored us into fellowship with Him. So no matter what has divided us in the world before, whether it's age or class or status or ethnicity or cultural background, those things aren't as important. Uh, Jesus Christ is what's most important, and we have that in common. So He's restoring us together. So that's the good news of the gospel here, and anyone can get in on it. And so, Paul focuses on this second part here in verse 6. So, part of the mystery of the gospel is being united to Jesus, restored to God. Part of it is restored to one another. And verse 6, he says this. You can read it with me. The mystery, this mystery is that the Gentiles, right, non-Jewish people are fellow heirs, meaning they're fellow heirs with the Jewish people. They're now members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So, in other words, here's what Paul's doing. He's in prison, but he's thinking about this great, big, massive, incredible plan for history that God has, and he's seeing before his eyes that God is bringing together people across divisions to be united in Christ Jesus, this massive division that was there between Jews and Gentiles. He's saying God is bringing in Gentiles to be united to Jewish people as they become Christians and trust in Christ together. There's now one new humanity, one new people who are warm-hearted toward one another because they have unity together in Jesus. And so, Paul is encouraged by this. He views history as a narrative and a plot line that's moving toward this beautiful end. And so, he's in prison, but he's not discouraged. He feels a great sense of privilege to be a part of this story. He never seems to get over the fact that he is included in it. I mean, I, I read Paul, and maybe you do as well, and you just get this sense that his attitude is something like, I'm in prison, yes, but I should be in hell. And so, I'm not only not in hell, I know the Lord, and He's my friend, and I know where all of history is heading, and this is a temporary affliction, and I'm seeing what He's doing in the world through my ministry of just being faithful to Jesus and sharing about Him, and He's bringing people together. This is incredible. I'm privileged to be a part of this. That, that's His attitude. 
And so it's a reason not to be discouraged. So when we may be fearful about where things might be going in our culture, or if we're ridiculed for trusting Christ and just simply holding fast to what the Bible teaches about what we should know and believe and how we should live, then we can remember the story. There is an arc to history, and it's moving toward Jesus. There is a right side of history, and Jesus is on that side. So that's the first encouragement, the gospel story. Second is the gospel mission. Paul feels this incredible sense of privilege that he gets to share the message. Not just that he can believe this, but he gets to share it with others. And even more than that, that he was entrusted with this unique role of sharing it to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. So verse 8, can read it with me. He says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. And here's what the, the gift was to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So when he says this grace was given, he's, recur- he's referring to his unique calling by the risen Lord Jesus to share the message with people from various nations and people groups, the non-Jewish people. And he's referring to it as a gift of grace. And he refers it to, that, uh, his, to his calling that way three times in this text. It's a gift of grace. He knew it would involve suffering when Jesus even gave him this gift of grace to take the message to the Gentiles. Jesus says, and I will show you how much you'll suffer for my name. So Paul receives the gift of this calling to be a missionary to the Gentiles. He receives it knowing that suffering's part of the package, and he says, it's a gift. It's a gift of God's grace. And you see even how he speaks here of referring to himself as the, the very least of all the saints. Um, he's not just kind of being generally humble here. You know, we, we, he makes these comments throughout his letters. He really believes this, and he, he makes kind of rational cases for why he actually is the least. I mean, if you say, no, 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 Paul, I'm the worst, he'd say, no, really, I am. And then he'd say, I used to track down Christians to arrest them, to drag them into prison, and try to vote on their execution. Paul's expecting us to say, okay, you win, Right? <laughs> He, he has this sense that, listen, I was the least. I mean, I was, I was the one causing suffering to Christians. And Jesus chose me to be the one to take the message of his grace to these people. What a privilege. And what's the message he gets to share? Verse 8, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He views Christ Jesus as this incredible treasure that knowing Jesus is an incredible Uh, source of joy, an inexhaustible source of joy. And these treasures here are probably what he's already been talking about in Ephesians. I mean, if you read that and you wonder, man, what are those unsearchable treasures? What are the unsearchable riches in Christ? We don't have to guess. He has been pointing to them in chapters 1 and 2 so far. He's referred to all the blessings of salvation in chapter 1, the blessing of being chosen before the foundation of the world, the blessing of being forgiven of all of our transgressions and sins, the blessing of being adopted into God's family, the blessing of knowing the mystery of the plan for history as being a plan to unite everything in and under Christ, the blessing of being, having received the Holy Spirit the blessing of being made spiritually alive when we were spiritually dead, the blessing of being brought together into local churches where people can gather across all sorts of barriers to have open-hearted unity together and love for one another. So these are some of the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
The blessings are like the vast expanses of outer space, right? We're learning more and more about what is out there, and we've hardly started, right? That's what the gospel's like. That's, who God, that's what God himself is like. That's what Jesus is like. And Paul says this, once again, to encourage them. He's giving them a perspective that can keep them from losing heart when everything around them seems so bad and that it seems hard for them because they follow Jesus. He says, if you are open about being a Christian, if you seek to have gospel conversations with people, what a privilege. And if over time you are gentle and kind, not obnoxious, if you are gentle and kind and you speak the truth in love and it becomes painful and you're rejected and it's costly and there's a sacrifice, he says it's worth it. Because you are sharing, you have the privilege of sharing the unsearchable riches of Christ with people who have no clue how great Jesus is. And so he's sitting in chains for it. John Stott put it this way, once we are sure that the gospel is both truth from God and riches for mankind, nobody will be able to silence us. So I read that with, and my response is kind of, two responses. One, yes, I believe that. Who could silence me when I believe this is true and it's riches for mankind? And then the other thought is, do I really believe that? Because there's many times where no one would have to silence me because I'm not talking. I wonder if you feel similarly. I was talking with some men from our church family about this text this past week, and one of them made a great point. He said that Paul viewed the good news of Jesus Christ uh, like a secret, that we know, and we get to share with others. And what do, we, what do we do when we know a secret? We want to share it. We, we feel a great sense of privilege for being on the inside, and then we, we get to go make it known to other people. And we're happy to do it. We're joyful to be able to do that. So we have this privilege of making the mystery of Christ known to the world. Third perspective uh, on reality, the third one that encourages discouraged Christians is the gospel church. So Paul's in prison because... Um, he's suffering for Christ, but he's not discouraged because first we've seen that God has revealed the gospel to him. He knows the truth of the gospel, and second, he then has the privilege to share that gospel message with others, and now the result of that is verse 10. And this verse is just kind of mind-blowing to me. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. If you have a low view of the church, the local church, um, and maybe part of that's for good reason, from being experiences, experiencing some terrible situations in churches, but if in general you have a low view of the institution of the church, just stare at this verse for a while. The result of Paul's ministry, he's saying, is that local churches are planted, and these churches are where God is creating a new family. And he's making people into a new humanity. These are people where people are coming. This is places where people are coming together and getting their lives back and feeling the freedom of knowing Jesus together. And Paul says, when this happens, God's wisdom is being communicated. It's being broadcast. It's being shared. It's showing, putting on display God's manifold wisdom. Right, this multifaceted wisdom of God is being put on display. So local churches are communicating something. 
The very fact that there is heartfelt unity in the midst of diversity shows God's wisdom because this was His plan to make this happen, to bring people together through Jesus, to create these happy communities of light in the midst of a dark and divided world. And that's what the local church should be like, happy communities of light in the midst of a dark and divided world. And so this is what we would uh, never believe unless it was said here. Did you see who the church is communicating this to? I mean, there's a sense in which it's broadcast to the watching world, and the local church should be kind of an apologetic of the gospel, meaning demonstrating the power of the gospel. But look what Paul says here. Who's actually the recipient of the communication? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So, the heavenly places, this is the invisible spiritual realm. It's the realm where angels and demons are. So, apparently, this spiritual realm is looking at what God is doing in the world. And before Jesus came, what did they see? Well, they saw divided humanity. They saw God doing something with the Jewish people and moving a plan along. But even with the Jewish people, most of them didn't love God. I mean, that's kind of the point of the Old Testament to show generation after generation, you had a handful of people who actually loved Him. And so, even they weren't getting along with each other, so they see a dark and divided world. And then Jesus comes, and the heavenly places, the the beings there are watching, and they see that Jesus dies for sins, He rose again as King, He pours out His Spirit, and then these new communities are formed where people actually love God. Not perfectly, but truly. And they actually care for each other and love each other. Not truly, but, or not perfectly, but truly. I mean, it's actually happening. They're loving one another. They're serving one another. They're bearing each other's burdens. They're inviting each other into their homes or dorm rooms. They're going out to eat and speaking about the real, true, hard things in life with one another. They're encouraging one another. They're sharing things with one another, helping one another in need. And so the angels are looking at this. And it's moving them to praise God because they see what God was up to all along. And this was his goal. This was his end. They're marveling. The apostle Peter says that angels long to look into the things of the gospel. They're they're kind of, in a sense, on the edge of their seat looking at what God's up to in the world. And this isn't just angels. It's also demons. And that's actually probably what Paul has primarily in view here. He refers to the forces of evil in the heavenly places in chapter 6 of this letter. So, what's the message to them? Well, what is God showing the hostile spiritual forces through the church? Well, He's showing them that He is infinitely wise and that no plan of theirs will prevail. The church is a sign to the spiritual realm about where history is heading. It's showing the demons that their time is short that one day they too will have to submit to Jesus, unwillingly to be sure, but brought into unity in that sense. So here's what the planting of churches looks like in the world. As as churches are planted and the, the world is filled with these communities of light, it's like the battles in World War II that began to turn the tide against Hitler. That's what it's like. So once Normandy happened, um, what was Hitler thinking? Right, once the Allies start closing in on him. What's going through his mind? I mean, he knew this is over, right? Those battles were a unified message to Hitler and his regime that his time was over, his time was short. And so, that's what local churches say to the demonic realm. Jesus is conquering the darkness. So, Zionsville Fellowship, when you invest in each other's lives, 
when you make it a priority to be here on Sunday after Sunday, when you open up your homes and your hearts and your lives to one another during the week, when you meet with one another and care for one another and pray on the spot for one another, and especially when you do this across divides of age and ethnicity and social status and economic situation, do you know what you are doing? You are unsettling demons. Some of you have been perhaps viewing the Christian life uh, in a far too individualistic way. Salvation is very personal, but it's not to be private. When we come to Christ, we become part of a community, and we're, we're baptized into Christ and to a local church, and we become part of this community that broadcasts a message to the watching world, visible and invisible, about God's wisdom. So if this is your home church, let's embrace this purpose that we have, that we're caught up in this purpose, this incredible vision um, of, of the centrality of the church in God's plan for history. And we do it because of who God is and because His wisdom is so wonderful. So let's keep pursuing unity together. Let's keep pursuing friendship with one another. Let's pursue hospitality during the week with one another. Let's do this with the sense of discipleship intentionality. Uh, by which I mean not just getting together to enjoy just being together, but also helping each other follow Jesus, helping each other know Him more and trust Him more. On Sunday mornings, let's come early and let's linger longer because relationships matter. We don't want to, I mean, this vision of the local church that Paul's talking about cannot happen uh, if, if the Christian life and church community means showing up, taking notes, and going home, right? I mean, that's, that's just the furthest Thing from this kind of massively thick relational reality. So, as we, let's return to the, the reason Paul's writing all of this. And here's, here's the reason he's writing these things, because you will not be able to handle, emotionally handle, Christian suffering without this perspective. Uh, we will not be resilient, you know, if the Lord doesn't change the tide in our culture, we will not be happily resilient here unless these are the realities that we, we've pressed deep into our souls so that we could even be like Paul sitting in prison saying, well, I know you're discouraged, but I'm not, and I want to comfort and encourage you. And so let me just remind you of just how good the good news is and that we're part of a story here. And let me remind you about the privilege of sharing the unsearchable riches of Christ with people, even if it means suffering comes. And let me remind you of just what it means to be part of the church, that this is displaying God's wisdom to the watching world, visible and invisible. And we're, we get to be part of this. What a privilege. So as we follow Him, and the more faithfully we follow Him, the more chance there is that we'll suffer for it. As we do this, this is the perspective that will keep us going. We have the gospel. We have this mission. We're part of this church. So whatever sacrifices we have to make to live faithfully in everyday life, in the workplace, in the home, in the community, with our words, with integrity, with holding fast to biblical truth, whatever sacrifices we make, it's all worth it because of this grace. It's a gift. It's a privilege to be a part of this. So let's not lose heart for what we might suffer or what others are suffering for the sake of Jesus. Let's pray.
Our Father, we know that there is so much that happens in our lives that can lead us to lose heart. Every one of us has probably felt deep discouragement at times. Some of us may be experiencing that this very week. And we also know how discouraging it can be when life, as hard as it is already, also includes suffering for being faithful to you. And that is perplexing at times. And so we thank you for revealing to us your purposes in the world and for rescuing us from your wrath so that we might live now and forever under your mercy and grace. So please, Lord, in conversations in the next few minutes, in times when we're quiet to think alone by ourselves tonight and this week, in conversations around the dinner table or over coffee or taking a walk or doing another activity, we pray that you would encourage us with these truths, bring these to to our mind again, press these deep into the fabric of our souls so that we can be an increasingly happy community of light here. And we thank you for how you have revealed your wisdom in your plan for the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to receive a benediction from God's Word. Now may the everlasting love of God our Father, who has adopted us into His family, and may the unsearchable riches of Christ be revealed to us, and may the fellowship and the unifying joy-giving presence of the Spirit be with us now and forever. Go in peace. Love you all.